Welcome to Shorts, Season 1. I'm Jen Thomas. I'm in London, UK. And I'm Lizzie Falconer, here in Atlanta, Georgia. We are two long-distance friends who want to talk about what we're reading. This podcast is about how reading short stories can show the world through different perspectives. This week we are reading Mary When You Follow Her by Carmen Maria Machado. It's available for free online at vqronline.org. Mary As You Follow Her is a piece of flash fiction. In this one-sentence, 1,124-word explosion of text, we meet Mary, a young Dominican girl living in a post-industrial, dying town in the United States, navigating fear, violence, sex, and her own escape. Uh, Lizzie, what did you think? Oh, Jen, I had so many thoughts. I loved this. I loved this story. I did too. I couldn't believe what the author was able to do in one sentence. I mean, the feelings that this piece gave me, how layered it was. I read this to prepare for this podcast. I maybe read it a dozen times. And every time I read it, I found something new. Yeah, I hugely, hugely agree. And I think that what really struck me, and we'll go into this, is is just the the speed of it. Like you are in from the first line. You're just moving at this pace. You cannot stop. She doesn't give you a chance to breathe. And it just, you're kind of, it feels like you're dragged through the story and it's over before you realize it's kind of truly begun. And uh, I just, I loved it. Yeah. I read the first pass uh, by myself, just reading it normally. And then I read it again out loud to my partner and I had the same experience. I literally couldn't catch my breath while I was reading the story. I mean, relentless, uh, the pace of it, the feelings of it, the, the images that Machado gives us in Mary's experience are just, it's unrelenting. And I think that that is a key theme of this story. Yeah, it really is. And I think, as you said in the introduction, I mean, this story really tackles fear and that sense of, you know, she, we, we hear this idea that Maria, who's the central character, the one that we're, the one who's narrating this story for us, there's moments where she feels that there's someone behind her. There's moments where she runs away. There's moments where she's pulling away from people around her, physic, you know, physically needing to escape. And the way that the author uses this the structure to give us that same feeling that we're that we're running, that we're being chased, that we are being pulled through something is it's just so so smart and you know it's it's so short but we get so much because the reading of it is evoking the same sensation of the narrative itself. Absolutely. So Jen, we begin in this first few words since the whole story is just one sentence, saying in the autumn of Maria's eighteenth year. The year that her beloved father, amateur coin collector, retired auto worker, lapsed Catholic, died silently of liver cancer three weeks after his diagnosis. And so right away at the beginning, we know these things about Maria. We know that she is 18. She's a teenager. Her father has just died in this silent, sudden way. And then as this scene continues, we hear there's been more death. So her father has died and then her favorite dog killed her favorite cat. And then all of a sudden we hear 
and the fifth local Dominican teenager in as many months disappeared while walking home from her minimum wage dead-end job. So in just these first 50 words, there are many disappearances and deaths in Maria's life, in this season of her life. Even the description of the of the teenager, the fifth local teenager, it says that she disappeared while walking home from her minimum wage dead end job. And we then we hear so quickly that that's also the situation that Maria finds herself in. So we're finding this parallel between this teenager who's disappeared and then the life that Maria herself is is living because she manages to get herself. And it literally mirrors the same language. One of those minimum wage dead end jobs because she was saving for a bus ticket to Chicago to get out of the town. Yeah. Jen, you bring up the repetition, which I think is a powerful force in this piece of flash fiction. Machado has these phrases that she continually repeats throughout the story that tell us so much about where Maria and her friends and family are located. So minimum wage, dead end job. And then when she's describing what turns out to be a very important and critical place in the story that we return to many times is the, let me find it. Oh, it's the strip mall, right? Strip malls are really a symbol of, to me, a dying sort of American capitalism. So strip malls are a collections a collection of small businesses, usually in one building, that have their place next to each other, like a row of shops, so they share walls. But they were often, at least when I was growing up in the 90s, run and managed by individual families. And in a one strip mall, you could have a jewelry store, a, a nail parlor, a clothing store, like a collection of different family shops, a laundromat, and was a center of commerce. But they're usually one story. But after the recession in 2008, when and the rise of Amazon, a lot of these smaller businesses couldn't keep up. And you see this all over the United States is these kind of abandoned, half-empty buildings that have been left to decay, that have been vacated and are closed and boarded up. And they're really, to me, a sign of American decay almost, or the leaving behind our middle class or the futility for many people who live in poverty to try to rise above it because there is no longer this option in many ways to open a small business on a storefront on a main street like you used to. So and I think, you know, you've, you've, you mentioned there American decay. It's just, it's another symbol in the story of loss, of degradation of death so there becomes this sort of I think the the words that she uses and she this is the phrase that she repeats is the unlit parking lot of the bankrupt half-gutted strip mall and so much of this story we understand from the talk of the minimum wage jobs from the talk of uh, you know, not being able to leave, people not having made enough money to leave their homes. There's this sense of this is a this is a story as well about about class and about poverty and about the inability to escape. And that comes up through the lens of her being a woman, through the lens of her being a part of a Dominican community, through, you know, the fact that these businesses have all collapsed. We just again and again get the sense that this is an inescapable, poor, crumbling, decaying community. You're absolutely right, Jen. 
It is, it is a story about class. It's a story about gender, which we'll go into. Um, you see all these different factors that weigh on Maria and her community and the death that she's facing and running from. So we, we start the story and we see that Maria's in this town and she's surrounded by all of this different death and fear. And then there's that bit about the fifth Dominican girl disappearing. And then we start to jump into another main theme of this story, which is about gender-based violence and the way that being in a female, in a woman's body um, attracts a sort of attention and fear and also how that mingles with sex. Yeah. which we've seen in other of our stories. But, you know, she says that Maria tells us about how after the fifth girl goes missing, it deepens the community's collective paroxysm of anxiety, which made them yell at their daughters and give out obtruse and nonsensical advice about how to avoid being a victim and boosted the sales of pepper spray and St. Anthony pendants. Yeah. You know, it's something that I think we grapple with. I mean, I've definitely grappled with that sense of, you know, there's, there's an anxiety within a community of daughters being told that they aren't safe. That, that incredible phrase, the nonsensical advice about how to avoid being a victim. So it's like the, the onus is put on the, on the girls themselves, on the women themselves, the daughters on, you know, you should avoid being a victim. And there's this extraordinary uh, section later in the story where we hear that her mother has warned her, you know, she's saying that she's wearing a Walkman, she's walking around town, which is something that I think, you know, now it's so hard to see anyone walking without earbuds in. And it says, even though her mother had warned her that music would conceal an attacker's approaching footsteps and felt her ponytail bouncing at the back of her neck, even though her mother had warned her that a ponytail was little more than a handle for rapists. It's this sense that, that the women themselves is only a potential victim. The idea that a woman listening to music means that she's not going to be alert enough to know if she's, you know, uh, being preyed on. A woman with a ponytail is just enabling uh, an attack. It's horrendous, but this sense of this fear of being a woman, that being a woman kind of means that you are a victim, could be a victim, is so strong in this story, which obviously, you know, as we get to the end, we find out that actually these women who've been going missing are actually have been murdered. And actually the, these fears from the, from the mothers are founded. They are, they are based in, in truth, sadly. Absolutely. Yeah. It's inviting. It's this idea that uh, being a woman invites violence. Mm. And we see that at every turn for Maria. I mean, there she, she calls it out. She says it's, you know, in the narration, even though, it's just, it's third person. It still says, you know, obtuse advice. And we see Maria kind of rebelling against these fences and structures that people are trying to give her to quote unquote, keep her safe. She's wearing the Walkman. She's got her hair in a ponytail. And in the same sentence where she's talking about the pepper spray and the St. Anthony pendants, she's saying it was the same autumn. She finally figured out how to give herself an orgasm. So it's the mixing of fear and pleasure. And you see her trying to navigate that because as a woman, those two things are really, really tied together. Yeah. And I think, 
you know, we we specifically she she crashes those two narratives up against each other multiple times in the story. There's a moment later where she talks about she's kind of gotten off with this co-worker and he turned out to have a foot fetish. And so she ends up kind of having to clean her her boots and she cleans it in the unlit parking lot of the bankrupt strip mall. And in you know, when she's doing that, she hears the sound of uh, someone behind her. She thinks that she could be attacked and she she runs and she leaves her boots behind. And it's that sort of, you know, as soon as she is in the space of kind of uh, of sex, of kind of sexuality, it's it crashes up against this potential violence and this potential threat. Yeah, it's you never stop running in this story. You never stop. You know, I would say that what Machado gives us in this story, this unrelenting pace, this constant mashing of the themes between fear, pain, sex, escape. She gives us the visceral feeling of statistics that we as women know are true. So I was looking up numbers to understand more about the actual number of sexual assaults and sexual violence that happens in the United States. And we know that young women of color and young trans women of color are by far the most affected. But overall, in the United States, one in three women have experienced some form of physical or sexual violence in the United States. And if that number is higher in poor communities of color, of course her life would feel like a constant running away of fear. Of, of running away from this threat. But she also isn't defined by that either, which Maria is fighting against it and trying to capture pleasure for herself. And yeah. it's so much for one girl. It is extraordinary. I mean, that statistic is, is shocking that it's one in three. And at the same time, I'm not surprised. You know, I don't know if you've had this experience, but like I've definitely done what Maria's done in that I've heard someone behind me or I've seen someone on the street and I have run home. And I I think I've done that in my teens, in my twenties and now in my thirties. Like there's not, you know, it's, there is this sense, I think, of vulnerability that is founded in reality and it is founded in the reality, this really difficult reality of those statistics that it's, you know, it's one in three. And as you say, it's higher in, in different communities. And yeah, that's what we get from, from this story. And I think that it's told in a way that makes that very visceral because of the way that she structures um, the story, because of the way that she crashes these moments together, because of the pace um, that we're pulled through, for sure. I think what's fascinating too, Jen, is there's all these external threats to Maria, right? And people are trying to Her mom's telling her, you know, don't put your hair up in the ponytail. You know, there's pepper spray, St. Anthony pendants. But we find out in the story that the actual threat to Maria is in her own workplace, in Phil's outlet. And that is where her boss is being, is trying to touch her and being inappropriate to her. So all of these things on these external threats that people are trying to protect her against don't actually protect her from the monster within her own workplace. It's just, there's like, there's no, there's very few places to escape, right? So to escape to. So her workplace isn't a a safe haven. 
even though, you know, on the surface, there's this line where, and I know we've spoken about this, I'm going to need you to explain to the listeners what you explained to me about the OSHA poster, because, you know, it's like there's this veil of safety, but it's she she's she's not safe in her workplace. Yeah, there's that line. Um, and after Phil handed her a paycheck with his other hand shoved deeply into his pocket and didn't let her go right away when she tried to take the envelope. And after Maria told him to go fuck himself and shoved her against the OSHA poster and he called her a bitch. So OSHA, for those who are not uh, Americans, OSHA is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And they in the United States are the body that is responsible for workplace safety and rights of workers. And so you will see in any workplace in the United States, if they're following the law, they're required to post an OSHA poster with phone numbers that workers can call to report discrimination or unsafe workplaces or gender-based violence or anything like that. They have all these different phone numbers. And so in this moment, you see Phil literally push Maria up against this thing that's supposed to protect her, but it's just a facade. Yeah. You know, the government does not work does not take care of her or support her. And I think that what Machado is doing with this image is to remind us that there is no safety net for these women. There is no, it is really about them saving themselves. And if they're able to do that, that sense of there not being a safety net that these government structures don't protect them is is pulled out again even more starkly I think when we hear about how the police in her community are treating the disappearance of these women so you know we know that from that first line that we spoke about that there was five local Dominican teenagers we know that one of uh, Maria's friends uh, goes missing so that's kind of at least um at least six. And we hear that, that there is very little reaction from the police, that the police are saying that they assumed that the girls were runaways until a white um, woman goes missing. And it's at that point that, and actually this, we it took me like three reads to realize this, but the white girl goes missing from the rich neighborhood nearby. That happens after the end of our story. So that's kind of in the future. And at that point, we hear that the police were combing through the streets in full force. And Maria's mother, this is the quote, said that she wished Maria was around to see them finally doing their jobs. So we hear that she's discriminated against and attacked in her workplace. We hear that these women are being, uh, are going missing under you know very suspicious circumstances. And we know that nothing happens until you know this uh, from a, you know, it's a white woman and she's from a rich neighborhood. And that's when action kind of kicks in from these government uh, systems. Absolutely. Yeah, Jen, you're, you're absolutely right. And I love the imagery that Machado uses here about suddenly her pale, thin-lipped face was fluttering like a flag of surrender on every telephone pole. You just, you realize that no, the police and the country, we're not missing these other girls. These other six girls, yeah. their faces weren't plastered everywhere. Even though you you understand that this is their town, 
I also wanted to take the opportunity to talk about Evelyn Hernandez, who was a eight, eight months pregnant single mother who went missing um, seven months before Lacey Peterson went missing in 2002. For those of you from the United States, that's a name you'll recognize. She was a mother who was the subject of a media frenzy case, uh, murder case when she went missing um, on Christmas Eve, 2002. Um, She was eight months pregnant. Her body was found uh, a few months later washed ashore with her unborn son, Connor, and her husband, Scott Peterson, is serving a life sentence in jail. Uh, But it was highly publicized um, all over all of the news medias here. And the story of Evelyn was was not mentioned. So she was a um, a legal immigrant from El Salvador. Uh, So I I think there are connections to the story and how race plays into who matters when they go, go missing. Um, her boyfriend is suspected in her murder, but he was never charged. Uh, and just to give you an idea about the disparity between the media attention between Lacey Peterson and Evelyn Hernandez, um, I'm quoting right now from a tale of two killings by Beth Spotswood, which ran in Alta online in 2019. It said, by its own admission, Hernandez's hometown paper, the San Francisco Chronicle, published 32 stories about Peterson in the months between her disappearance and the arrest of Scott Peterson, including four front page reports. The paper published only four stories on Hernandez, not a single one on the front page. So linking back to, yeah, I'm just linking back to the line in in the one sentence story where it says, but months before a white girl from a rich neighborhood also disappeared. And suddenly her pale thin lipped face was fluttering like a flag of surrender on every telephone pole. And the police were coming through the snarled streets. It's exactly what happened to Evelyn in San Francisco. So just telling her story As you said at the top, this is a story about many things, but what continues to come back to me is race and gender and class. Yeah. And how those forces make you invisible to the government structures that are supposed to protect everyone. And that the onus therefore becomes on you to protect yourself. You have to protect yourself. You are destined to be a victim. So you have to change what you're doing in order to live within this kind of community or this society that that's been built or you have to leave it and that's what we end up getting to by by the end of the story is that Maria has been able to save enough money from her job to be able to to get that bus ticket to Chicago that she mentions right at the top and you know that's in stark contrast to the the first woman the first girl we hear about who goes missing who said who was living in a bedroom in her mother's house that she'd never made enough to leave. So this dead end minimum wage job that um, Maria was in has allowed her to, to make that break and to make that change. Yeah. It's remarkable the way in which this happens. And I, when I first read it, I actually 
wasn't sure if Maria really had escaped or if that was a euphemism for uh, being murdered. I just was so taken by the violence and the disappearance of her friends and community members. And we kind of see Maria starting to mix that dreaming and fantasy at the end as she's escaping. And she's saying she Maria left a note for her mother on the fridge telling her that she loved her and was sorry and missed her already and that Papa was watching out for her. And she starts to evoke and bring back all these people that have died, her father. And she takes a rosary with her and she's looking out the window and thinking about all of these women who were so forgotten. Um, and there's this remarkable ending that really sticks with me, Jen. And what, what did you think about that? The last 50 words. The, oh, I mean, that is a, it's such an emotional, it's such an emotional punch. And I, I just want to read it. So just to, to remind us and the listeners of, of how much she, she pulls into these, to this final section So she's sitting on the bus and uh, she says, she imagined that the missing girls were all living in the city in brick row houses on a single block, a well-lit block with gardens and parks and cafes and a sidewalk where they all laughed and made art and dated and dined and fucked and danced and aged and married and had children. And at night told stories to each other about the last long ago time they'd truly been afraid. I mean... She imagines this alternative world that shouldn't be out of reach. It's a, it's a, you know, it's brick houses on a, on a well-lit block where there's gardens and parks. I mean, we're talking about communities, you know, there's thousands of these communities around the world. There's, there's, you know, places in the States. We're not, she's not wishing that they all lived on a paradise island. She just, for her, this, this imagined utopia is just somewhere safe somewhere where they can feel safe and they can do all the stuff that they're meant to do. And it's not about them being victims. It's about them dancing and dating and having children and and just growing up, which we know that they were unable to do. I don't know what you thought, Lizzie. I, I think you put it really beautifully, Jen. It's all these verbs we see here at the end. And it's almost the banality of it, of mm. the fact that these women did not get to live lives, live safe, and happy and healthy lives. You know, she's not asking that they make a million dollars and they travel the world. She's dreaming for them that they have a safe home and they dined and fucked and danced and aged. You know, I think that's a really important verb and choice there that they were allowed to get older and, and there's still that community feeling. And they told stories to each other about the last long ago time they'd truly been afraid. Yeah. It, it's the same. It's remarkable. It's the safety that is the goal um, and the dream. The dream is feeling safe. And, you know, when you put that into perspective of the lives that we lead, that's a basic need. That's a basic human right. And what the author is able to do in this very, very short story is remind us of the inequality of how that safety is offered to some and in an impossible dream for others. It's, it's incredibly smart and, and sad. Yes. Who deserves safety and who gets safety in the United States? I think that's, I'm saying United States because that's where our story is based. Uh, but you could, you could put it anywhere in the world, I think. Yeah. About who deserves to be safe and grow old and live the lives that they want. I mean, 
It's remarkable what Machado does in one sentence. The things that she makes us contemplate and face and think through. We've both been um, really hit by this story. Why do you think it's important for people to read this story, Lizzie? You know, I think I, I read an article, an interview with the author after reading this story. And I think her response sums up why I think it's important to read this story and also flash fiction uh, and this style of writing. Machado says, it's always about the reader's response. And I think it's about the reader's response in a way that has nothing to do with me. Ultimately, the way people react to my work, it's interesting to me. And when people tell me, tell me about it, I think it's really cool. But ultimately, every reader reads things in their own way. Every reader has an intimate and personal relationship with the things that they read. And that actually has very little to do with me. So our reaction to this story and how we face it and what we think about from it, I think is why it's important to read. It's a deeply uncomfortable read. And I think that's good. Yeah, I think for me, I think as a woman relating to this story, it felt very personal. It felt very relevant. It felt very recognizable. And what I found interesting, so from my perspective was, you know, how she managed to integrate the experience of being a woman um, of being a woman from a Dominican community, of being a woman from a um, struggling community and show the, that each one of those layered on created additional threat, created additional risk was incredibly important and a perspective I think we don't hear enough. Thanks for reading with me, Jen. Thanks for reading with me, Lizzie. So we just wanted to get back on the mics to talk about um, a case that has come up uh, here in the UK that uh, happened after we recorded the episode um, of Mary, When You Follow Her. Um, so Many of you in the UK will already be aware of this, but um, back in March, uh, Sarah Everard, who is a 33-year-old woman, uh, went missing while she walked home from a friend's house in South London, and her body was found a few days later. Um, her disappearance, um, and then obviously the tragic discovery of her body, um, sparked this huge conversation online about the safety of women and the role of women and the role of men and how we experience um, just that feeling of, of being safe in our own communities. Um, and one of the most extraordinary things that I was kind of reflecting on as, as this, um, this case was um, unfolding here in the UK was just that idea that, that is brought up in the story around you know, who has the right to feel safe? It's something we spoke about, um, Lizzie, a lot. Um, and what, how are women viewed or how are women kind of positioned as potential victims? There's a real moment of kind of significant anger and fear and um, sharing of stories um, from women across across Britain. 
Um, but something that, that came up and there's this kind of extraordinary tweet that went viral here by that came from Harriet Johnson, which I'm just going to read here because it really, really struck me and it just felt very um, apt for the, the story we've just been reading. Um, and what Harriet wrote was, every woman you know has taken a longer route, has doubled back on herself, has pretended to dawdle by a shop window, has held her keys in her hand, has made a fake phone call, has rounded a corner and run. Every woman you know has walked home scared. Every woman you know. And just that idea of, you know, do we have the right? Should we be running home? Are we going to get attacked tonight? Um, it's a horrible for it to play out that way. So I just wanted to talk about Sarah. Thanks, Jen. The next story is Light by Leslie Necka Arima on Granta.com. You can find the links to all the stories at shortsthepodcast.com or by following Shorts the Podcast on Instagram or Twitter. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We'll see you next week.